Well, hey, 2 Timothy chapter 3 is uh, our launching point, point today. If you have been around the last couple of weeks, you know that we've been doing uh, a, a, a series of messages called God Wrote a Book, and it is it, most, in fact, just about everything that we do here at Crosspoint is we want to preach from the Scriptures. We take a, a passage of Scripture and then we, we, we stick close to the sacred text. We believe that the Bible is completely inspired, given to us from God. And so we think that it's the most profitable thing we can do is preach from the Scriptures. Not, not listen to the preacher's thoughts about the world, but listen to the, the biblical writer's thoughts that God inspired them to write. And so we preach, and that's called expositional preaching. It means that you're taking the Scriptures and you're preaching from the Scriptures. It doesn't mean that you're starting with a thought. And then you're trying to grab scriptures from that. So that's, that's, I want you to know that. That's, that's a very high value here. We take scriptures and we preach from them. That's what we do a vast majority of the time. These last three weeks though, last two weeks and today, we have been doing a series about the Bible. So more than preaching from the scriptures, we've been talking about the scriptures. And today we're ending that. So we're going to start in... Uh, kind of a diving board. We're going to spring from 2 Timothy 3, which is where we've been starting from the last couple of weeks. And today I want to wrap up this series of messages about the Bible. We, we spent the first week kind of doing the nitty-gritty work of talking about archaeological and manuscript proof that the Bible is a, a spectacularly unique book. You can't, you can't prove anything. You can't prove that, that the Bible is is definitely the Word of God. If you could prove it, then faith would not be an element of the Christian life. I mean, you can't prove that George Washington crossed the Potomac, or the Delaware, or one of those rivers. Was it the Potomac? Is the Potomac even a river? Okay, so so I know my American history very well. California uh, State High School. But, um, but you can't prove history, but you can look at a book that is so, so profoundly unique that all of the evidence points to its veracity and its reliability. That's what we did the first week. Last week we looked at how the Bible is put together. It's, it's, it's this beautiful mosaic that when you see it from a bird's eye view, it makes this incredible sense. I mean, it's just this beautiful structure. And so we, we looked at that, at what the Bible, how it fits together. And today, I'm going to read this verse and then I'm going to make seven quick points. I hope to move through them quickly. And then uh, we're going to settle on... Uh, I take about 15 or 20 minutes, and I'm going to talk about the overarching message of the Bible, and we're going to start in Genesis, and we're going to end in Revelation, and so um, I hope you're brought to lunch. No, I'm just kidding. We won't be very long. Well, let's read 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14, and this is the Apostle Paul who's writing to a young man named Timothy about the Scripture. This has been, this would be a great, a great Scripture to memorize about the Bible. This is one of the most definitive statements in the Bible about the Bible itself and how we come up with this doctrine of this belief that the Bible is, in fact, the very words of God. And this is what Paul writes to Timothy. And he says, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. In other words, in this case, the Old Testament. And now we can extrapolate that to mean the entire Bible, the Old and New Testaments for us which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And then in verse 16 he says, All Scripture is breathed out by God. In other words, it literally comes from God's mouth into the heart and minds of over 40 men who wrote this text over a span of 1,500 years, who at various times knew or were somewhat aware of or not aware of at all that they were being used by the Holy Spirit in an authoritative, eternal, timeless way to record the writing and the record and the revelation of God. God breathed it out through men and it is now profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Well, let's pray and ask God to help us um, benefit from today. Lord, Lord, we love your Bible. It's, it's stunning how beautiful it is and, and how, how it has endured centuries of persecution and attack and 
how it comes handed down to us through the careful and meticulous ministry of thousands of men who copied it page after page before there was modern technology. It is, it is spectacular when we think about how we have and can be very confident that what we have today is in fact the Word of God. And God, I pray that you would, you would just help us pause for a second and realize that we're not coming to just an ethic book or a textbook or a set of moral principles, but we are coming to the truth. And that there may be people in this room who haven't settled on that. And I pray, God, that you would use your Holy Spirit, that you would use your way to pry open their heart and that you would that you would speak and that you would do a work in that person's heart that may be doubting or skeptical so that they would come to know who you are through the Scriptures. And for those of us who who already have come to that point and believe it, but yet we tend to doubt or we tend to not give it the centrality in our lives, I pray, God, that you would birth in us a burning passion to make the Word absolutely central in our lives. And and then, God, would you help me decrease and would you increase? and, And I'm very aware of how of how incapable I am, and I, I am very aware that you draw straight lines with crooked sticks. And so I, I'm a crooked stick today. I've got issues. I've sin that I'm still dealing with. I've got, I've, got, I've got insecurities. And so God, would you, in spite of me, would you use me to draw a straight line so that we can understand more clearly who you are and this beautiful thing that you've done for us by giving us the Bible. This for the praise of Jesus. For his glorious name. Amen. Amen. Well, Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 14 through 17 is where we started off. And let's look at seven points. Can you guys hear me? I felt like it was going out a little bit. Are you guys, all right, if it is a problem, because once I get going, I, I kind of get in a, a little bit of a rut. So um, if I'm, uh, Reynolds, if it's cutting out, please raise a hand. Seven things I want to say, and then we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna walk through the Bible. Number one is that the Bible is by far the most unique most majestic and trustworthy historical book. We spent a whole Sunday on that. If you, want, if you weren't here and you want further um, unpacking of that, get the CD or download the podcast of two weeks ago. There is, there is insurmountable mon- manuscript evidence that the Bible is the most historically reliable historical book in the history of antiquity. I mean, there's just, there's just no... There's no refuting this. There are in the original language that the Bible was written and there are over 5,000 handwritten manuscripts compared to the next book of antiquity, which is Homer's Iliad. There's 643 of those. And if you counted the other languages, Latin and the other languages that the Bible was written in, in a in a handwritten manuscript over the centuries before there was a printing press. There's over 20,000 manuscripts compared to 600. So that doesn't prove that the Bible is the Word of God, but it does give us evidence that it is by far the most unique, most majestic, and by far the most trustworthy and historical reliable book that you can find. That means that when you are reading the book of Luke, or that when you're reading Ezekiel, or when you're reading Philippians... God's going to have to do a work in your heart to convince you that it is, in fact, His words, but you can know beyond the shadow of a doubt that it is the very words that Luke and Ezekiel and Paul and whoever wrote the Scriptures. So it is, it is spectacularly trustworthy. Secondly, the Bible, and this is, I hope this encourages you because it encourages me, the Bible is very, very, very hard to digest. It is, it is so huge. By its sheer volume, 66 books written by over 40, 40 men on three different continents of a span of 1,500 years in many different genres. Some of it is prophetic. Some of it is historical narrative. Some of it is letters to churches. Some of it is apocalyptic imagery. Some of it is really confusing. Take heart in the fact that the Bible is very difficult to digest. And I mention this often, but one of the Bible, Bible writers, his name is Peter the man who was with Jesus during his earthly ministry, says at the end of his letter in 2 Peter chapter 3, 15 and 16 about Paul, who's one of the other apostles that writes some of the New Testament books. He says, look guys, some of what Paul wrote is hard to understand. So the Bible is hard, it's hard to digest. And let me just make one little sub-point off of that is that because it's so difficult to digest, it is, it is something that you can't just snack on. There is a whole industry of like three minutes to a closer walk with God. I mean, 
Really? I mean, is, really? I mean, I, okay, but, but don't trick yourself into the appetizer approach to the scriptures. It, it's, it's impossible to take this incredibly magnificent work and to, to, to cherry pick it, to, to just take a, you gotta, you gotta commit, and we're gonna, that's another one I point, so I'm not gonna get, in fact, it's the next point, and point number three. Understanding the Bible is a slow, lifelong pursuit. It's a slow, lifelong pursuit. And just one little sub-point to this is that one of the best things that you can do as you're engaging the Scriptures is not act like you know more about it than you already do. Uh, I became a Christian on March 16th, 1989. I was a senior in high school. I was 18 years old. And I had spent most of my life actually going to church, but regrettably, I went to a church that didn't preach out of the scriptures they didn't talk, the guy would get up and read some story or whatever and then we'd we'd do it and and leave and so i didn't really know at anything about the bible and then three months later after i became a christian as a senior in high school i went away to college and i was in this church situation in college where i w- was a christian for about three months and i kind of was trying to because of my insecurities prove to everybody that I knew a little bit more about the Bible than I did, and I didn't, and so I was running this, this game, and it was false, man, it was just, and it really stunted my growth for the first couple years in the scriptures, because I was trying to act like I knew what I was talking about, and I didn't, I, I didn't, and, and I'm not getting any buy-in from any of you guys, I, evidently you guys are the holy ones, I don't know, I mean, it's like, it's like I grew up on the Mexican border, and I kind of grew up semi-fluent in Spanish, but I grew up semi-fluent in Spanish around a bunch of my Mexican friends who also spoke English. And so when we came up against some word that I didn't understand, they would say, they would, they would speak it in English. And then the first time I went out of the country to a Latin American country where nobody knew English, I kind of had this pressure to act like I knew Spanish. And they were like, I'm like, slow it down, man. So don't, don't be... No posing is what I'm saying. No posing. All right. We the Bible is 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 a lifelong, slow pursuit to understand it. And, and that brings me to point number four, which is that the Bible should produce a deep, deep, deep humility in us. It, there's a funny thing about kind of religious circles and church culture is that once a, a person kind of starts to understand the Bible. Um, it, oftentimes it can start to have the absolute reverse effect on that person. It kind of produces like a pride and an arrogance in them. You know, and, and isn't that sort of crazy? Because the whole deal about the Bible is it produces this amazing humility, not arrogance in us. And, and so let's be careful that as we grow as a church and as you grow as a Christian, that, to remember that the Bible, when, when you read it and when you... When, you, when it really takes a hold in your life, you, you begin to see people that are dreadfully sinful. You begin to see them much more graciously and with much more humility. Listen to this scripture. It's in Hebrews 4, verse 12. One of the classic scriptures about the Word of God. This is, this is what the writer says. Hebrews 4, verse 12 and 13. It says, For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And verse 13, listen to this, it says, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. The Bible should produce a deep humility in us. It reminds me of that resolution by one of my... um, heroes of the faith, a man named Jonathan Edwards, who was used mightily by God in the Great Awakening in America in the 1700s. And he wrote this. this was, he wrote 70 daily resolutions when he was in his 20s. And this was number eight of his daily resolutions. And I think this is, this is evidence of a life of humility in the scriptures. And I have it written in the back of my Bible. He says, I, I want to live resolved to act in all respects, both speaking and doing, as if nobody had been so vile as I. And as if I had committed the same sins or had the same infirmities or failings as others, and that I will let the knowledge of their failings promote nothing but shame in myself and prove only an occasion of my confessing of my own sins and misery to God. There's this strange little thing that happens in church culture when you start to be comfortable with your Christianity and the Bible. Is it for, it's like you just, you just control all, delete your life before Jesus, and you act like, well, how could they do that? I mean, I had that thought the other day. I, was, I became familiar, I became knowledgeable about somebody's sins, 
And you know what went through my mind? How can they do that? <laughs> and the Holy Spirit was like, uh, that was you about 18 years ago, Home Slice. The Bible should produce deep, deep humility in us. Number five, the Bible is first and foremost a book about God, not us. Don't approach the Bible as, as like some, some little problem solver that you can go to and you just kind of grab some stuff out of it and then, and then you know, you kinda, it, it, there's this little tool that I can apply to my problem. Yes, the Bible is very helpful and it gives us amazing wisdom to live our life in a, in a more God-centered sort of way, but the Bible, in fact, God is about Himself before He's about us. In fact, God is always speaking all the time Everywhere, to every person, the world and the Bible is speaking about the glory of God. I I don't need to prove this to you. I'll just give you a couple examples. Nobody, nobody goes to the rails of the Grand Canyon, leans over the rails of the Grand Canyon and says, (laughs) War Eagle or roll tide, or hunker down, you hairy dog. Nobody does that. When you, when you lean over the gate of the Grand Canyon, I mean, you, you, something, you, whether you are a believer in God or not, something is within you that makes you realize that there's something bigger than yourself, man. Nobody stands on the coast of the Pacific Ocean, looks out onto the vast, endless sea and says... <laughs> been taking creatine for the past six months, and I can bench press 300 pounds. You realize in that moment just how small you are, right? Nobody stands at the foot of the Himalaya mountains and says, 4,000 square foot house, three car garage, and a 401k. Because the universe and the Bible is speaking, and the Bible over and over has this theme that God does things for his glory and for his splendor. The Bible is a book about God, not about us. Point number six, and this is really, really important. Because of the Bible's claims, indifference and neutrality to it is not an option. That's the thing that separates the Bible from any other religious book and Christianity from any other set of beliefs is that... Is that the Bible, you can't be, you can think you're being neutral to it, but the Bible either, either, either saves you or it condemns you. And there are a lot of Christians, in fact, there are a lot of preachers that don't have the guts to say that. But that's true. The Bible is exclusive. It calls the world to reconciliation in Christ alone. And it makes statements like John 14:6, where it says, Jesus, in fact, says that I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except but by me. And then one of his apostles says in Acts 4.12, he says, There is salvation in no other name except for Jesus. There's, there's no other name given under heaven by which men can be saved. And so the Bible, listen, you can act like, well, I'll just, yeah, it's a good little book. It's a, it's a very helpful thing for the development of Western civilization. But, but the, Bible, the Bible doesn't leave room for that type of neutrality. It is either... It either saves or it condemns. Neutrality and indifference is not an option. And, and finally, in point number seven, and then we're going to launch in the message of the Bible, the Bible is given to lead us to new life in Jesus, not just improve the life that we already have. The Bible comes and it tells us specifically that we are lost, that and we are completely unable to come to God without His grace. And so it doesn't come as an add-on. It's not like life 2.0. It's not a New Year's resolution it, it cuts us and hum, humbles us and brings us to the point to where we have no hope but to trust in God. And, and so the Bible is not given to us for self-improvement. It is given for, to us to lead us to new life in Christ. So what is the message of the Bible? Well, in about 15 to 20 minutes, I want to give you a survey of the Scriptures and then, and then I want to tell you where we're going at the end of this. And this has been my heart for these past three weeks. If you're already a Christian, I hope that 
these last three weeks and what we're going to do here in just a moment would bring you to a place of saying, God, I want to make the Bible far more central in my life than it already is. And, and I want to be a person who engages the Scriptures for a lifetime. If you're not a Christian yet, and I hope that there are many of you in here that are, well, not many, but I hope that there are some of you, I hope some of you are Christians. <laughs> I hope that this would cause you to come to a point of decision and realization of who Jesus is. The Bible starts, obviously, in Genesis and chapter 1 and chapter 2 tell of this creation story. And in Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27, we see this beautiful picture of the Trinity where it says, God says, let us make man in our own image. And so every living person that's ever been created has been created in the image of God. There's this, there's this image, there's this thumbprint, there's this fingerprint of God on every human soul. And the Bible continues and says... Very shortly after things were created good, not just good, but very good, things go very, very bad. And in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, we see the first preaching of the good news. When God says to Adam and Eve, He says, and to the serpent who caused this fall in the garden, He says that, that you, shall, you shall cause great trouble for these people. You will strike them, you will injure them, but the seed of this woman, and God is prophetically in this moment speaking about Jesus, He's saying this seed of this woman will come and will crush you. And so there, in the first three chapters of the Bible, we see the story of redemption beginning to unfold and the plan of reconciliation already in effect. And the Bible continues. And mankind, the descendants of Adam and Eve, begin to populate the earth. And, and a good portion of the book of Genesis reads like um, a, a soap opera or a daytime talk show with people throwing chairs at each other. I mean, it gets crazy. It gets really wild. I mean, weird stuff is happening. But through these people, God chooses a man named Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. And Abraham becomes the man whom God blesses and he establishes a covenant with. And he says, through you, Abraham, I will bless all the nations of the earth. And Abraham begins to journey with God. And Abraham has a son named Isaac. And then Isaac has a son named Jacob. And Jacob has a son named Joseph. And Joseph has brothers who do unspeakable things to him, sell him into slavery. And through an amazing sovereign twist of events, Joseph finds himself at the end of Genesis in a position of authority in a foreign land to be able to receive his family, to rescue them from famine in their land. And that's how the book of Genesis ends, with God's people being rescued by this younger brother Joseph in this foreign land of Egypt. And a couple generations go by and the, the Israelites go from being neighbors in Egypt to slaves in Egypt. And God raises up this, this pre-figure, this shadow of Christ, Moses, this great deliverer. And Moses rescues his people from Egypt. And most of us, if we've got any Bible in us at all or any Sunday school in us at all, we at least are familiar with the Feltboard story of Moses parting, God parting the Red Sea and Moses delivering his people out of Egyptian slavery and then they wander in the desert for 40 years trying to make it into this promised land and here's this beautiful picture that God doesn't just want to rescue you out of sin, he doesn't want to just rescue us out of sin, but he wants to move us into the life that he has for us. Christianity is not just the testimony of what God brought us out of, but it's this beautiful life that he calls us to. And then the rest of the Old Testament is this beautiful picture of God working with a rebellious people. They go along for a while and Moses, this great leader, dies before he gets his people into the promised land. And then God raises up this, this, this prefigure, this type of Christ, this, this young man named Joshua. And Joshua takes the people across the Jordan River into the promised land. And then they get into this promised land and still they're, they're rebelling and they're they're going their own way and they're doing their own thing. And so God gives them leaders. And that's what this book of Judges is all about. And that's not good enough for them. And, and God says, I will be your king. And they say, we want our own king. We want, we want to be like the other people. We want to be like the other nations that have their kings. Aren't we, as people, just always wanting other things other than God? Don't we just, we want to be like everybody else rather than God. And so God says, okay, I'll give you a king. And he gives them this man named Saul who starts out well, but... Saul eventually starts to compromise and to mess up. And whenever we 
settle with some human fix to a situation. It may go well for a while, but, but the lesson of Saul and his compromise tells us that unless we submit ourselves to God, human solutions only work temporarily to a problem and then they eventually go very, very bad. And then after Saul, God raises up this young shepherd boy named David and he becomes this figure of Christ in the Old Testament where he becomes a righteous and good king whose heart is after God. But even he does terrible things. And that's a great lesson to us because God can use even a man who commits adultery and covers up his adultery by intentionally committing murder but still God works through this man. And then David has a son named Solomon and Solomon becomes this great and wise king but even he has his problems. And then we begin this period where God's people begin to be divided in the Old Testament. The balance of the Old Testament is this time of this divided kingdom of Judah to the north and Israel to the south. Or is it Israel to the north and Judah to the south? And it is, it is this time of 1 Kings and 2 Kings and First and Second Chronicles and God speaking to his people. And all along the way he would give prophets speaking about this Savior which is to come Jesus, this Messiah, this one who once and for all will deliver us from this curse, this penalty, the consequences of our rebellion. And he'll send a prophet like Isaiah, and Isaiah will say in his beautiful letter, he'll say that, he'll say that the Son is coming, and his name is a counselor, wonderful, Prince of Peace, mighty God, and he's coming to rule and reign. And the people at that time would say, I, what, I mean, what do you... I mean, we're not quite sure we understand, but there's this, there's this promise given of Jesus coming once and for all to make all things right. Then Jeremiah, this prophet, comes along, and Jeremiah, again, he's the weeping prophet who speaks to his people, saying, come, come, come back to God. And then God raises up this man named Ezekiel, and Ezekiel establishes through God, through Ezekiel, God establishes this covenant. And he says, there will come a day when I will take your heart of stone and I will take it out of you and I will give you a heart of flesh and I will cause you to walk in my statutes. And so God is speaking to his people. He's wooing them back to himself and he's promising that one day a deliverer, a savior, a Messiah will come. And the Old Testament continues in this great leader named Nehemiah is, is in this position of authority and he leads his people back and unifies his people and leads them back to the holy city of Jerusalem and rebuilds the wall and through him and several other men the city is rebuilt and that's where we are at the end of the Old Testament in Malachi and in the last book of the Old Testament there's this promise of this one coming where the prophet Malachi says that the son of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings. There's this continual plea from God that there's this one coming who will once and for all take care of the problem of human brokenness. It was the message of the Old Testament and it is the same message that is to every person in this room that things are broken, they're not the way they should be and God is solving that problem through the person and work of His Son, Jesus. And then the Bible says in Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4, this beautiful verse, it says that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son to be born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under a curse of the law. Why did God allow Jesus to be born at the time He was during the Roman Empire? Well, from the 400 years from when God's people we last know what they're doing in Malachi until the 400 years when Jesus comes. They go from, from Egyptian captivity to Babylonian captivity to Persian captivity. And then during those 400 silent years, the Roman Empire takes over. And the Romans are these amazingly ingenious people who, who build these roads and, and establish this 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 network of language and, and they, they adopt the Greek culture and so everybody across the Roman Empire and the known world at that time is speaking Greek and there's all these roads going from Rome throughout all of Italy and so in that time when the, the skids were greased for the propelling of the gospel and the good news God in that very strategic time uses an evil Roman Empire for the preparation of the sending of a son so that when he comes and when he lives on the earth and when he dies and when he 
resurrects and when he ascends and then when he calls men to tell his story, the, the roads and the language are set. And so then we see the gospel come. Jesus comes and Matthew's written to these Old Testament Jews. And Matthew encourages these people that God called initially. And so Matthew is full of these, these points where he says, and it's, it fulfills the prophecy. Remember in Isaiah when he said this? And that's what Matthew is connecting for these, these ethnic Jews. And then the Gospel of Mark is written for these Gentiles, these, these, these pagan people who become Christians, who are living in the Roman Empire, and who are under the rule of a strict and authoritative and strong government. And so the Gospel of Mark is strong and strict and authoritative, and it says Jesus immediately comes and He does these things. So the Gospel of Mark is for a certain set of people. And then the Gospel of Luke is for a certain set of people, the skeptics. And Luke says, hey, I'm a physician, and I, and I have studied this for some time and I have written an orderly account of all that Jesus was purported to say and do and I've investigated some things that the people said and I've checked them out with first hand sources and now I'm delivering to you this gospel about this Jesus and so the gospels are, there's not just four gospels there's these four beautiful like arrows pointed at four different types of heart the Jew and the Gentile and the skeptic and then John comes as this gospel written to this Greek world that is so self prideful in their own ability to reason and he uses the gospel of John to cut through their rationalistic human reason and say that no there's this there's this there's this God who speaks even in that context to a lost prideful people that's why there are four gospels and then and then there's this book of acts that tells the story of God's men who are taking this message in the face of great persecution we're not talking about not being able to pray in schools and we're not talking about um, you know the silly little things that we deal with in America we're talking about under the threat of Roman persecution and an emperor named Nero who was skinning Christians and using them as oil to burn the lamps in Rome under the threat of that persecution these apostles are spreading the gospel through the Roman Empire in the book of Acts and in Acts chapter 8 and 9, God raises up this, this, this murderous, completely antagonistic man named Saul who he knocks off of a horse and he says, you will follow me now. And then, he, and then later on his name gets changed to Paul and he becomes the apostle to the Gentiles in the Roman Empire. And the rest of the New Testament, by large account, is an account of his spreading of the Gospels. And then this man, Paul, he begins to write letters. And after Acts, he writes, this, he writes this magnificent manifesto of truth. And it's called the letter to the Roman church. We know of it as Romans. And we read Romans and it, it makes very, very clear the way of salvation. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that the wages of our sin is death. But that while we were yet sinners... God sent His Son Jesus to die for us and if we will confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and that He rose from the dead, we will be saved. And Romans is the first letter we have in the Bible to a church making very, very clear exactly the set of truth, the core belief of Christianity that we have. So, the, so God gives it to establish His truth. And then... <laughs> Lest we think that after we have this great letter that we're perfect people, there's these two letters that Paul writes to these crazy, freaky, ridiculously psychopathic Christians, and they're called the Corinthians. And he writes to, first, to the Corinthians one letter, and in 1 Corinthians 5, he handles this, oh, this minor little issue about sexual immorality and this guy who happens to be having an affair with his dad's new wife, so he's sleeping with his stepmom, and Paul has to handle that. And then in the next chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he has to talk about Christians who are suing each other, and so he has to handle that. And then later on in 1 Corinthians, he has to write about the rich Christians who are catering in carabas 
to their feast after church and the poor Christians who are picking out of the dumpster behind Hart's chicken and they're, they're, they're elbowing each other. And so he says, no, 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 it is not about you and, and your little subculture and how much you have or don't have, but the communion and this meal that you should break together should draw you to Christ. And so he writes this letter to these whacked out people. And that should give us great comfort in it. And it should also make us realize that the church is a messy, jacked up, sinful, crazy, freaky place. And it's the bride of Christ. So if you hang around here for a while, if you hang around here for a while, you're going you're gonna, to, if this is your first Sunday, aside from the crazy guy up front preaching, you're probably thinking, God, these people got it all together. Hang around for a couple weeks. They, we don't. And I, who wants to be in a cute little church where everybody holds hands and sing kumbaya? That's not life. One of the letters in the Bible is to a church who is jacked up beyond all relief. And he corrects them and he rebukes them. And he reminds them of who they are in Christ. And then, and then here's, the, here's the other beautiful thing. Is that he writes another letter to them called 2 Corinthians. And in 2 Corinthians, you know what he says in chapter 5? To these jacked up, sinful, carnal people who are sleeping with their stepmom, cutting in front of people, and suing each other? You know what he says to them in 2 Corinthians chapter 5? He says, Now you, you sinful, pardoned rebels who are very much in progress, you, you have been given the ministry of reconciliation. <laughs> and the love of Christ should compel really, really struggling people like us to show the love of Christ. We are God's letter. God uses messed up people. Is that not comforting? And then he continues and he starts to write these letters to these smaller churches. One is Galatians and it's this beautiful, beautiful synopsis of the gospel. And in Galatians, they're starting to, they're starting to add stuff on, right? They're starting to add like certain dietary laws of the Old Testament Jews and they're starting to add certain festivals. And so he writes to them and he says, no, no, you're being deceived. This gospel that I've preached to you is the true gospel and lean on nothing but this gospel. And so we maybe think, oh gosh, well, that, that doesn't, that, that doesn't apply to us. I mean, we're not talking about festivals or high holy days. I mean, but you know what? We do the same thing here. If you, if you, if you sing this set of songs, then you're like the real church. Or if you have this experience with the Holy Spirit, then you're the varsity Christians. Or if you have a stained glass window. Or if you have an organ. Or if you have cool guys with stonewashed jeans. Or if you have a soul patch. Or if you have guys that mess up their hair and put gel in it and little streaks of blonde in it. Then you're the real cool hypocrite. And none of that is true. And Galatians, the message of Galatians tells us that Jesus plus nothing in a thousand different forms equals salvation. And for some people it's liturgical worship. And for some people it's high school kids or college kids or post-college kids with a guitar rocking it out, or whatever, however old you are. But it takes on a million different forms. And the body of Christ is a mini-splendored thing. So don't look down the end of your nose at somebody who's doing it a different way, so long as we center our hope and our trust on Jesus. That's the message. And so he tells the Galatians, I'm surprised that you are so quickly deserting the true gospel. And then he says in Galatians 2.20, one of the most magnificent verses in the whole Bible, he says, I, I have been crucified with Christ, therefore it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's the heart of Christianity. It's not about me anymore, but it's about God who lives in me. And then he writes this letter to the Philippians lest we think as modern-day Americans that everything should go well for us. He writes this letter from prison. And he gives it this amazing twist. And he doesn't say, hey, come break me out, boys, because you know I could be more effective if I were free to preach the gospel. He says, oh, isn't this great? I'm in prison now. Now I can preach the gospel to the Roman guard. And God has used what has happened to me for the furtherance of the gospel. And then he speaks to these people and he says, and no American Christians need to hear this. He says that our citizenship is in heaven. 
We are just pilgrims here on earth. And we can do all things to Christ who strengthens us. Philippians 4.13 We can be well fed or we can be hungry. We can endure persecution or we can endure great success because this is not our home. Americans need to hear that. And then he, he writes this beautiful letter to the Colossian church, the church at Colossus. And, and once again he's centering and reminding us about who Jesus is. And he says in Colossians 1, verses 15, 16, 17, and 18, he says about Jesus, He is the image of the invisible God. And all things were created through Him and by Him and for Him. The world is about Jesus, not about our success or our best life now or everything lining up for us. The world is about Jesus. And then he gives practical instruction about how we should live. And in Colossians chapter 3, he begins to talk about the church and what it looks like. Because how we live and how we treat each other matters. And he says this beautiful verse in Colossians 3, 11. He, he says, Here there is neither Jew, nor Greek, nor Scythian, nor barbarian, nor slave, nor free, nor West Coast, nor East Coast, nor Auburn or Georgia, black or white, Mexican, yellow, Lebanese, half Italian, German. There is neither Jew, nor Greek, nor South African. There is, no, there, there is nothing except Christ. Christ, and Christ is all and in all. And there's this beautiful mosaic of all these different types of people who come together to make this glorious thing called the body of Christ. That's, that's Colossians. And then he writes, he writes the first and second Thessalonians and he says, no, no, lest you think that this is all there is. He says in his first letter to Thessalonians, he says that Jesus is coming back. This world is broken. And in the twinkling of an eye, He will come and receive. So be ready. Be watchful. Watch how you live. Live in such a way that you are ready for Him when He comes back. And then He reminds us in Second Thessalonians that there's an enemy, there's an adversary. His name is Satan and he comes to kill us. And he's the man of lawlessness. And he will deceive many. He will deceive many. And he continues. And then he writes these letters. And I love these letters. He writes, they're called the pastoral letters. And he writes to this young, scared, frightful man named Timothy, who I so identify with. And he writes two letters to Timothy. And he says, Timothy, he says, do not be afraid, but preach the word. God has not given you a spirit of fear, but of power, of love, and of a sound mind. And so in the context of an antagonistic culture, he, he motivates and encourages people like us to do the work of an evangelist, to preach the word, to plant churches, to multiply this effort, to continue this work, to live in such a way that honors God. And he writes another man, to another young man named Titus, and he says to Titus, he says, gather a bunch of other men and appoint them as elders and so multiply this work. It's not about you. It's not about seeing how many people can get together in one room and listen to you talk. It's about appointing other men and planting churches and doing the hard, the hard work of advancing the kingdom and planting churches and spreading the gospel and missions. Do that. And then in Titus chapter 2, he gives this beautiful picture of what community should look like in the church. And he says the older men should teach the younger men. And he says the, the, the older women should teach the younger women. And it makes me think of that beautiful psalm in Psalm 145 where it says that, it says that one generation shall commend your works to another. Look, if you are older in here, get to know some young punk. They, they look intimidating because they have an iPod and they can text and, and they know all that smart key stuff, but they are insecure, they are rudderless, and they desperately need a father or mother in the gospel. Right? And if you are a young punk in here, and, and I'm sorry, I shouldn't use that word, but if you are, if you are, ah, some of you are punks, if you're a young punk in here, saddle up next to somebody who's got a little bit of weather on them, right? And, and, and learn from them and respect them and, and, and realize that they've got life, life wisdom and that's Titus. Older men teach younger men. Older women teach younger women. And this beautiful body of Christ grows. And then one of my favorite letters in the New Testament, it's like, why is this in here? But when you read it, you understand it. He writes this letter to this man called Philemon who is this slave owner. 
And, and the Bible does not endorse, but the Bible's not making a statement about slavery. It's just, it's just writing to people within their context. And Philemon was this slave owner who became a Christian, and he had this slave named Onesimus, who ran away from him years ago, and maybe even stole some property for him. And when he ran away, he got captured, and probably got thrown in prison, and he got acquainted with Paul while in prison, he gets converted to Christianity, cleans up his life, and now becomes one of Paul's ministry helpers. And here's what Paul does. To force biblical community, to force the living out of the gospel, he says, hey, hey, Onesimus, I'm sending you back to Philemon. Wait a minute, Paul, is there anywhere else I can go? Can I go work with Titus? Or what about Timothy? I mean, come on, anybody but the guy that I ran away from and stole from. And so he writes this letter to Philemon, and he probably has Onesimus carry it to him. And it says, receive him back. I know that you will. And he forces, he forces Christian community. He forces people that have a grudge against each other to work out the beauty of Christ because Philemon tells us that it's not about our feelings, it's not about our grudges, but it is about the grace and the mercy and the beautiful transformation that takes place in the gospel. And so two people who wanted each other's necks now live together in rugged, rugged, beautiful harmony. Oh, Philemon, what a message. And it's just one one chapter. Read it. It's beautiful. And then there's this beautiful book called Hebrews. And it reminds us that all those blood sacrifices in the Old Testament, the bulls that you killed and the goats that you killed and the birds that you killed, it was all pointing towards this one sacrifice once and for all. And in Hebrews chapter 9, it says some beautiful things. And it says, and now once and for all, Jesus has entered the holy place and spilled his own blood. And now you don't have to go through all of that festival stuff anymore because because the Savior, the Messiah, the Lamb has come. And so what does that mean to us today? It means that if you have received Christ and you've been saved by his work on the cross alone, now you are free to receive that and not to try and go through the rigorous rigmarole of trying to please God in this this game of religious merit because you have been saved by grace and not works. Because once and for all, Christ died for you. And then he writes this beautiful letter to this man named James, who's the half-brother of Jesus. And James gives balance to the great letter of Romans because Romans says that you've been saved by faith and nothing else. And God knew that we would probably read Romans and we'd throw up our hands and say, oh, well, it's faith and nothing else. And so we can do whatever we want to do. I've been saved by Jesus and I've got this one-time confession. But then he writes this letter called James. And James says, yeah, yeah, but if you truly have been saved, this is what it will look like in your life. And so faith without works is dead. That doesn't mean that works save you. It means that once you've been saved, your life will begin to take on a different look. That's not to say that you're perfect, but it means that you will begin to work out, it will begin to show itself in your life. And then he writes through first Peter, this man named Peter, and he writes these two books and talks about living in a hostile and broken world. And then he writes through this disciple John, first, second, third John, tells us that God is love, and that this is love, and do not love this world and the things in it that we can love God because he first loved us. And then he writes this letter, Jude. And Jude says, contend for the faith. It was once and for all delivered to the saints. And then he writes this beautiful book, this confusing, mysterious book called Revelation. And at the end of Revelation, he says this. In Revelation 22, in verse 17, he says, The Spirit and the Bride say, Come, and let the one who hears say, Come, And let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who desires take the water of life without price. The message of the Bible is simply this. God saves lost sinners in Christ for His glory. God saves lost sinners like us in Christ for his glory if you are already a Christian would you 
make the Bible central in your life. If you are not yet a Christian, would you, would you open up your heart and would you hear the words of the Spirit that says, Come, come, come and receive life. Receive life. Guys, if you'd come back. Let's bow our heads. Lord, I pray that as we spend a few moments responding to you, I pray that those of us in this room who are already Christians... I pray, God, that you would light a fire within us. Not to be people who just occasionally engage you through your word and move on to other gospels and other things and other other sources. But that you would burn in our hearts this unbelievable notion that you wrote a book to us and that in it, as First Peter says, it contains everything we need for life and godliness. So, God, if we're Christians in here today, I pray that you'd, you'd rekindle a fire or light a fire in us for the word. That we'd be people that, as the Old Testament prophet did, that we'd eat it. That we would, that we would digest your words. And God, I pray that you'd, you, you'd do that for us. And Lord, if there's somebody in here who's not sure, but they're wondering who you are, I pray by your spirit that you would do what only you can do and that you would draw them and that they would make a conscious decision to turn from self-reliance, turn from sin, turn from trusting in their own ability to figure things out, and then that they would trust in Christ alone and what he did on the cross for them and whatever that may look like in their life that they would make the that they would have the passion and the energy and the compulsion to to engage you and I believe by your spirit you'll do the great work of rescuing them regenerating them saving them so help us Lord be people of the book that that know you through your word and that build our lives and our marriages and our church on it. Humble us by your word. And God, do great things in our hearts and in this group of people here right now, I pray in Jesus' name.